Support for this podcast comes from Invent Together. I bet you didn't know that inventing activity by black inventors peaked in 1899, and it has never recovered. Black and Hispanic college graduates patented half the rate of white college graduates. That's just one of the reasons why you need to know about Invent Together. When our patent system gets more diverse, our nation will get stronger and more successful. Find out how you can help diverse inventors and unleash economic opportunity at inventtogether.org. Hi, and welcome to The Pollsters. I'm Margie O'Meara, Democratic pollster with GBA Strategies. And I'm Kristen Soltis-Anderson, Republican pollster with Echelon Insights. And each week we bring you the polls driving the news in politics, tech, and pop culture. So Margie, I've been listening to a lot of this podcast called The Watch, which is the Ringers entertainment podcast. And at the start of every show, the host, Chris Ryan, the way he introduces his co-host is always something like, and now we're joined by Andy Greenwald. (laughs) And I'm like, I'm going to start doing that. And this week I'm joined by Margie O'Meara. I love I love that. You know, I I was at that's so that reminds me of a political event I was at recently where one candidate introduced another candidate and the candidate said something that was very honest and and lovely which was that's my favorite part. <laughs> Like, of course, that's, you know, that's just like a very human thing. I love that. I don't I feel like if I scream, people might like drive off the road or, you know, punch the person on the. <laughs> yeah, I apologize. I should have warned everybody um, <laughs> for the 15 percent of pollster viewers who are listeners who just uh, had a traffic accident as a result of my screeching. I apologize. <laughs> I know. Right. Um, we are joined here today by Mary Agney, who is one of my business partners, Carl's daughter. She is shadowing us because she wants to learn more about women in politics, and there is nothing that we like more than spreading the word about women in politics and um, how awesome. But we're not is. a we're not a lady show. No, we're not. Most of you guys are dudes, so this is you know. Don't worry, we'll go back to we're back now. <laughs> don't get don't freak out. <laughs> that like lady lady splaining part is over. Um, yes. <laughs> so what are the top lines today? The president is almost Mr. 44%. What is going on? We're going to talk a little bit about that. Plus, the generic ballot closes to almost D plus five. Should Republicans break out the champagne? Then there's big changes coming in exit poll land. Bare knuckle brawl between the Edison research folks and the rogue upstarts with the AP, Fox News, and NORC University Chicago creating their rogue exit polls. We will discuss. Then the courts don't follow the polls. But if they did, originalism is sort of falling out of fashion. Scalia acolytes will be crushed. Plus there's also chit chat about polling generation gaps this week. And polling on climate change is a big generation gap. But we'll end the show by discussing what I'm really excited about for Saturday as an American who is definitely not at all British (laughs) but likes to pretend to be. The royal wedding. Yes. So speaking of things that are not decided by the polls, there was a poll this week in by Morning Consult Politico, which immediately they had a lot of stuff, which we'll talk about some of it in a minute. But the piece that ricocheted around the tubes pretty quickly is the percent of Americans who say that President Trump deserves the award of the Nobel Peace Prize. That's 
that's a thing, I guess, now. You know, there have been some members of Congress who have been like, oh, yeah, that's, you know, mm-hmm. what time's my primary? Oh, yes, I believe, you know, Trump deserves the Nobel Peace Prize, but it's 24% of Americans, 37% say the same about Obama in this poll. 24% say that, say that about Trump, only about half of Republicans. I, I don't know what to make of this. I mean, obviously, this is one, I mean, to the extent anything should or shouldn't be judged, you know, determined by polls. This is not one of those things that is poll driven, obviously, but doesn't hurt to ask, I guess, to see where people think. And, you know, I think that's probably a sign that 50 percent of Republicans who think he deserves it. Right. I mean, how much of that is like just some sign of what people think of the Nobel Prize in general? Or do they think like Trump hasn't really reached? You know, there are probably Republicans who are favorable toward him, but don't think he should get the Nobel Peace Prize. And are those a good Democratic target? I guess that's my question. Yeah. So is this a question you want to start doing? Like, (laughs) don't model on support, turnout. No, no, no. Build a model. How likely is this person to think Trump deserves the Nobel Peace Prize? And if they are a Republican who doesn't? Yeah, that's interesting. Yeah, then go get them. What magazines do they read? What websites do they go to? Go. But there may also be people who think, Look, I don't know that Donald Trump deserves the Nobel Peace Prize in theory, but Barack Obama got it. Basically, he had only been president for what less than a year. I mean, he had been inaugurated and then all of a sudden, boom, Nobel Peace Prize. And I think that still sort of lingers for conservatives as like, oh, come on, guys. And so that's part of why it doesn't surprise me that a fair number of conservatives are like, sure, you gave it to Obama before he had done anything in office. So... Shoot, if they give up nuclear weapons, like, let's do it. But I would expect that the awards committee will wait until at least there is some evidence that North Korea is doing <laughs> that some good, something, something good <laughs> besides just coming to the table. So we'll see. <sighs> Which is now, you know, but potentially whether the Nobel committee is approving of Trump or not. Uh, more people are approving of the president. His job approval has gone up to 43.8% as of press time, which is, I think, a pretty big deal. And we were discussing before the show started, is it because the economy is pretty good and that heals all wounds? Or is it because of some of this foreign policy stuff? Withdrawing from the Iran nuclear deal in North Korea, this stuff has all dominated the news as of late. Or have people just gotten habituated to you know, daily outrage. It's not as shocking anymore. They've learned to kind of, you know. It's like before we tape our show when we have to take five seconds of listening to the ambient noise in the room so that you can just kind of edit it out of the podcast later. I'm looking at Richard. and you're like, it's, Is that what Americans are doing? Like the ambient noise oh, you have of like, like bum what the latest thing and is? And it just hurts. And oh. you're just used to it being to hurting and it's just always Spe- there. Pain of, in the background. Yeah. And then like you eventually become numb to it or like the way things smell. Like you smell them for the first couple of seconds and then it. Suddenly, right. you don't. Yes, that's what the- <laughs> America doesn't realize that they they need to shower. <laughs> this, this, these Trump approval ratings are like a bad smell that you um, become used to. <laughs> speaking, by the way, of of chaos and and Stormy Daniels' lawyer, we've talked about how what was it a week or two ago we were at some party with. Michael Avenatti. So yesterday, I, didn't make I went time. to. Uh, oh, you didn't. No, you missed him. No, I know. Don't you think uh, you? I would have told you if I had seen him. Oh, <laughs> don't I'm you think sorry. I would have had a photo with no. him on Facebook? <laughs> well, you can. So now you can go take a picture with Patrick. So my business partner at Echelon Insights, Patrick. I feel like that Rufini. might hurt my relationship with Patrick <laughs> if I approached him the way I might approach Michael well, Avenatti. Someone appro- <laughs> Okay. Duly noted. Duly noted. That would be uncomfortable. Somebody ran up to him in a parking 
parking garage and was like, are you Stormy Daniels' lawyer? And he had never even seen what Michael Avenatti looks like. So he's like, what are you talking about? So I had to show him like a side by side, which I think they could be cousins. Right. Possibly, like plausibly siblings. Well, you could see why someone would be like, I'm just going to ask, you know. Why not? Roll the dice. (laughs) Maybe it's him. Maybe it's him. (laughs) Um, Yeah. And then last week after the show – uh, Mark Penn like wrote a piece like trashing Michael Avenatti. Michael Avenatti like dragged Mark Penn on Twitter, and I was just like, "Oh, this is this is great!" Like it's not even the nine or ten o'clock hour. This is like eleven o'clock in the morning, and I'm like totally like <laughs> the day's all downhill from here. It's like texting you from Minnesota, <laughs> my excitement because like nobody in like Brainerd wanted to hear this story. <laughs> like, by the way, we should have you last week. You we did the show with Margie Remote. You sent a photo of you yeah. with like a Paul Bunyan yes. statue. Yes. We sh- I feel like that's one of those moments where I'm like maybe we should do video sometimes. Yeah, I don't I feel Margie like I'm reporting live from the Paul Bunyan yeah, statue. Yeah, no, I I would need taxpayer funded like daily hair and makeup. <laughs> when that's available then maybe maybe we'll do it. You know, the shot I was kind of like small and tiny. But yeah, it was like a private bunion. It wasn't like a one of the big public Paul Bunyans or several in the state, but I have taken one with one of the other bunions in Bemidji, this was like at a retreat. They just, you know, I think if you put up a Paul Bunyan statue, people just come and take pictures. That's like a, that's a thing. <laughs> well, I'm glad you got your picture. Yeah. So let's talk a little bit about this morning consult poll about all of the, all things foreign policy. Did anything stand out to you in particular? I mean, so, you know, we talked, I think it was last week, and Ariel Edwards-Levy had that table, which I'm assuming she's updated with this, of like all the different outlets that have asked, do you favor or oppose um, the, you know, withdrawing from the Iran deal. I mean, so this poll from Morning, Morning Consult digs deep into the Iran deal in a variety of ways. We're not going to talk about every single thing. They had quite a few questions, but you can, you know, we always link to it. And this poll found, like a lot of the other ones, a very high don't know, you know, it was evenly divided basically between right decision, wrong decision. It's a little different than other question wording because it says, talks about Trump, it names Trump in the question, which I don't think they all do. So that kind of activates your whatever team you're on more. Um, but you still have about a quarter who say they're not sure. But then they have a variety of follow up. Does this make Israel more safe? How much more safe or less safe is the United States or Europe or the Middle East? And does it help or hurt national security or the economy and, you know, businesses? And it has like, you know, maybe 10 questions about the impact of withdrawing from the Iran deal. And in all of these, people see the impact as negative. So even though and, you know, there's still high, don't know, but you still see more people saying that the impact is negative, like whether it's like 40 to, you know, 40 to 50 percent roughly depends on the on the question. But it doesn't seem like there's a clear sense that this is a this was a helpful decision, even if people are a little bit more divided or unsure on the decision itself. Yeah. When it, they, they ask this battery of does the does withdrawing from the Iran nuclear deal make each of the following more safe, less safe or not much of a difference? It seems like people have a stronger sense that this will be negative for the Middle East. Um, on this question, 16% say it will make the Middle East more safe. 49% say it will make the Middle East less safe. But then 35% say they don't know. Um, so even on that one, which is the the highest, this makes someone or something less safe, you still have uh, less than half 
who hold that opinion, but it's just because the don't knows are so big on that. Um, The place where the don't knows are the biggest is on the impact on the U.S. economy. So people are somewhat more able to draw a connection between the Iran deal and the safety of Europe, um, U.S. national security, those sorts of things. But then they say, do you think this helps or hurts the U.S. economy? Um, And here you have 36 percent who say don't know. You have uh, 29 percent who say it helps. And you have 44 percent or pardon me, 34 percent. So still, uh, you know, about a third who say uh, somewhat or strongly hurts. So people are although I don't know that there has been that much of an economic justification for it. Already any funds that we had been withholding from Iran were already dispersed back to them, I believe, in the early days after the deal was agreed to. So Right. And it's right. And, you know, I think there's a lot there's some conversation, right, as Trump's moves abroad, North Korea, the embassy in Jerusalem, which this poll was completed before the protests in Gaza. Mm-hmm. So it, the fact that it, it shows that people think the Middle East would be less safe is not doesn't I don't think is impacted by what just happened. But you have so you have the Iran deal, North Korea and the embassy all kind of happening in this sort of similar time frame. There is this question or conventional wisdom, perhaps, or thought is this because is this why Trump's numbers have improved a little bit, or um, was that the goal of these actions? I don't know. I don't know the answer to that. I think that the Iran deal questions here that show that most people think the impact is going to be negative and at best people are unsure about the withdrawing. I don't think that that one doesn't really seem to be driving it now. That may not be true about North Korea. So there you have half a majority, which is, you know, a good number for the president on things, feel confident in his ability to handle threats posed by North Korea. I mean, we've seen sometimes some dichotomy in how people respond to Trump's international prowess, right? That like he has a toughness, but he has a recklessness. And so depending on how you ask the question, you get a slightly different answers. And so we'll see how this one's evolving because the news on this is also changing and evolving rapidly. Yeah. And so I think on this question of is his improvement in job approval being driven by foreign policy, national security stuff or economic stuff. So I just pulled up Real Clear Politics. They have, you know, Trump job approval and then the polls that specifically say, do you approve or disapprove of the president's handling of the economy? Do you approve or disapprove of the president's handling of foreign policy? On foreign policy, Since the start of May, the three polls that have asked this question about foreign policy, so it's CNN, Reuters, Ipsos, and Economist YouGov, they all have his foreign policy job approval closing to like, you know, 45, 46 percent approve. So which is a big improvement, you know, previously disapprove had been 57, 55, you know, it had been like these double digit margins in the Mm -hmm. red. And now they've pulled to about even. Well, if you look at the economy numbers, I mean, the economy numbers are good, but they've been good for a longer period of time. Right. So I think that supports the idea that his approval improvements over the first quarter of the year were economic, but now at least this what North cha- Korea news may be the thing that's driving the latest, you know, point and a half, two point. Bump. Right. What is changing right now to show this little bit of a bounce? I mean, the counterpoint is like, you know, these are small fluctuations. We should expect things to fluctuate. You're still talking about a president who has record low approval rating for so early in his presidency. They've never been good. You know, yep. like we're not talking about big differences here. It's not like, oh, whew, that time was over. 
he's all good now. I mean, these are, you know, these numbers have never been good. It's hard to see how they ever become good if his behavior continues the way it has been. I think that's fair to say. Or, I mean, that seems like a safe prediction. And so I... uh, so anyway, so I, I sometimes I feel like we're kind of like looking at this at the same way as the polls and the and the conversation about like, do you regret voting for him? Like the same kind of like, how is it possible that his numbers are, you know, inching up? What is happening when still we're talking about really tiny fluctuations? So that's mm-hmm. the other counterpoint. But it does seem like there are a couple polls that are showing this. And as we've seen in other periods, it's related to the generic. And so the generic seems a little bit better for Republicans now, too. Yeah. The generic ballot, which, you know, back in early, pardon me, late 2017, early, early 2018 was, you know, double digit margins for Democrats has closed. We now, uh, the Real Clear Politics average has D plus 5.2, which of course is not good news for Republicans, but it is better news for Republicans than the way things looked just a couple of months ago. Uh, you'd much rather be plus plus five D than plus ten D. I mean that 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 changes which pieces are on the board and and aren't. I still think that Liesel Hickey, who is co-host of uh, a fabulous podcast that everybody should take a listen to, yeah, with Ali Lapp, with yep, all about house races and such. But she had this tweet um, back after I think it was after the Pennsylvania eighteen special, which was. Republicans, you all need to be running like you're 10 points down. If you've never had a campaign before, get one. If you've never knocked on a door, you better start knocking on doors. Like, don't – everybody needs to stay frosty. And this – I don't – from the Republican perspective, just because you're at D plus 5 and it's not D plus 50, like it felt like it was, you know, a couple months ago. Like, everybody, you know, stay stay in control of, of still trying to build a campaign and run because – you're still they were still not out of the woods. I mean, for sure. I mean, that's always good. That's always good advice, honestly, no matter what kind of gig you have, like, <laughs> like whatever your job, like it's never bad advice. Um, but it is, you know, Democrats have been out in the wilderness for many cycles. Right. And in legislative districts and local races where you can, you know, you can really get to know everybody in your district a little bit more easily. That's how people win. That's how people stay in in tough climates, that's how they get reelected because somebody will say, well, you know, I don't know what's going on at the top of the ticket. I don't like this party, whatever, for governor. But I've seen, you know, I've seen Joe at my, my kid's high school graduation or, you know, at the neighborhood barbecue. And obviously that takes a lot of effort and there's not necessarily an immediate ROI, but it's not something you can just do starting July of election year, you really have had to do it for a long time. So the folks who are a little bit stronger in whatever race they are as Republicans are ones who have known that, you know, have known for a long time that they were going to have a tough re-election because their district's pretty swing or blue. So they've always had a plan. They didn't just wake up with a plan yesterday. Um, But there are folks who, you know, have never really had to do this or haven't had to do it in a very long time. And, you know, they got to like go break out the, you know, the running shoes and maybe they're not quite, you know, they haven't quite, they're not up to their like fighting weight. So. Yeah. Well, as we're talking about the midterms, there's some exciting news in pollster land around our understanding of what will happen on election day from the exit polls. Uh, so if you are a longtime listener of this show, you will know I have very strong feelings about 
those who consume exit poll data early. The exit polls have traditionally been done by the networks for um, Edison by Edison Research, where they conduct some polling ahead of election day, uh, I believe, to capture folks who are early voters, who do mail-in votes. And then they combine that with in-person, at-the-polling-place interviews on election day. Um, and then that gets fed back to HQ in waves. And, you know, the first two waves wind up helping to drive some of the network election coverage while the third wave is still coming in, while they're waiting for polls to close. After the fact, the exit polls are an interesting artifact for understanding why an election happened the way it did, although there is certainly a great deal of criticism of the exit polls that comes from within pollster nerd wonk lands. Um, But finally, there are two news organizations that have decided they have had about enough of the exit polls, in part because they have led to sort of misleading coverage or a misunderstanding of what's going to happen on Election Day. I mean, I I have talked on this show about how in 2016, the early waves of the exit polls suggested it might be an early night for Hillary Clinton. And that's why the networks began their coverage sounding so like, okay, well, let's, you know, why you watched this like evolution over the night of the election of all of these commentators and hosts like being very surprised. It wasn't just because pre-election polls showed Hillary Clinton up by like three or four. It was because we had exit polling that even though I know you're not supposed to consume early exit polls, even I was sort of it had like, uh, you know, colored my thinking. Um, so anyhow, AP and even two, I mean, this is not even a new thing. Two thousand had an issue. They didn't do exit polls in the two thousand two midterms. So this yep. is not like this just happened. So this has been kind of a, a thing of introspection for a long time. Yes. So now the Associated Press and Fox News have broken away. I'm glad that AP has done this as well, if only because I think if it had just been Fox News, people would all say, "Oh, this is just Fox News yeah. crying because." And and that's right. not that's not we did how our own exit poll the Fox News for a magical two hours. Right. All of our team is ahead. Think what you will about Fox News. Their polling and data unit is on the up and up and bipartisan. And bipartisan. Too. Like it, it, I, I know people have this like reaction to Fox News if they're on the left, but don't think of their polling and data unit in that way. So I'm glad that it's not just them taking this leap so that it doesn't it, it, it looks more like this is a legitimate methodological beef, not just people conspiracy theorizing about, you know, uh, Trump, et cetera. Um, so anyhow, there's a great Steve Shepard piece up uh, explaining what is going to happen here. So AP VoteCast, it's going to combine traditional probability-based polling with an online opt-in survey of voters in targeted states. So rather than standing at the polling place on Election Day, they're going to try doing this using a more traditional survey methodology. Mm -hmm. Um, And what I am quite excited about is they are going to be presenting the findings of this test run. Uh, They've tested out uh, it's Fox News and University of Chicago, which is working with both outlets on the project, uh, will present the findings of their testing this weekend at APOR in Denver. So, which Exciting. is a good time to remind people that Kristen will be in APOR and she is having like have a, a beer, beer thing. A beer thing. <laughs> have a beer with Kristen. Yeah, come hang out. I'm going to go to Yard House. Come find me 6 p.m. on Thursday. Just just from six five to 6. Uh, Drink quickly. Did I say 6? It's going to be 5. 5 to 6. <laughs> 5 to 6. Uh, come grab a beer. I'll buy you a beer. We'll chat and then we'll all disperse to the other, you know, fancier after parties that are being thrown by legitimate news. <laughs> <laughs> so we're, 
actual big survey research companies and things. So, so here's what I want to know, which I'm assuming they they allude to in this piece, or Steve alludes to, not they. Um, and I want to hear about full report from everybody who's going to APOR um, about what this means for vote by mail, early voting, in person, you know, no fall absentee, in person, early vote, you know, all those different kinds of ways that people can vote before election day. How are they integrating that? Um, and how will that be different than how the traditional exit polls are going to be accounting for all that early vote? Because there are a lot of battleground states where there is a very high, some states it's like six or seven percent, some states it's over half or more, you know, that are voting, you know, far, far more um, are voting early. And so it's not just you know, accosting people on their way out of the polls. How do you do that? You know, sometimes you're able to get a list of the people who've turned ballots in. So are they going to do, they have something that way where they're going to be trying to figure out who has a ballot, who hasn't turned it in? You know, are they doing any of that before election? Like those are the kinds of questions that I'd love to hear more about how, what they're going to do there. And then, uh, you know, the fact that it's online in addition to I guess in addition to phones, so they're are they not doing anything in person at all, or they're doing it in person? Sound like it. I, I will report back from from sitting in on this session out at Apor, but I'm I am really really interested. I'm I'm also fascinated by the fact that you know on election night you can sh- switch from network to network to network, which you should totally watch ABC News because that's where I am. <laughs> plug for for the network yes. that employs me. Yes. But you know you could flip from network to network to network and they all they have their own decision desks so they would make calls on which races they okay, we're ready to call Pennsylvania for right. Donald Trump at different times, but they were all working off the same set of data. Right. Uh whereas now, like if you are watching ABC, NBC, CNN, CBS, the networks that are still working with Edison and you want like a different take Fox, in addition to being a different take for sort of ideological pundit worldview reasons, will also have a different set of data. Right. Or you can follow your friends at the AP on Twitter and well, they'll have a whole different data set. And the AP of. is traditionally more conservative in its calling on election night than other outlets. Like another – like the big networks will ca- usually call before AP if I'm not mistaken. I think that's I think that's true. I think so, the pressure is less on for AP to be first. Whereas that's if true. you're a TV network, like the pressure to be the first to make the call is, is great. That's true. Right. So it's it, – for AP, it's it's perfectly fine to. I mean, I, I say this, you know, it's fine for AP, but they, you know, being first and then having to change that call is probably not as good as just, you know, that's bad, right? But being a yes. little bit later is, you know, they they don't lose as much in that delay. So they have traditionally been, I think, a little bit more uh, cautious and and less likely to be first. So I don't know how that changes or how this affects that or if that's part of their strategy. I mean, that's an interesting other layer here. And then the other thing I want to hear from folks who hear about the test is how this modality is going to or this effort is going to address Latino voters because that was a big question mark about the exit polls from last time around, do they have enough Latinos or the right kind of Latinos? And then the last piece is like what other kinds of questions besides sort of the demographics and like the eight or ten different like issue types of questions that the exit polls ask, like how extensive – if they're going online, then maybe they can ask more stuff than the in-person where you just want to get a complete – you know? Yeah. There, I remember, I think the first APOR I ever went to, I believe, was in Chicago in 2010, maybe it was 2009. It was a long time ago. 
And I remember sitting in on a panel where there was a gentleman who was talking about why the exit polls in the UK were so much better than the exit polls in the US and why the exit polls in the US were total garbage. The UK ones were good. And he said the reason why he thought the UK ones were good was the UK ones ask one question. Who'd you vote for? Like, that's it. Hmm. Whereas our exit polls are just like these, you know, multi-page questionnaires. And do you have attrition of people going like, I don't have time to take this. You can get a bigger sample size if all you're doing is being like, you, fifth person that walked out of the polling place, who'd you vote for? You, 10th person who walked out of the polling place, who'd you vote for? You, 15th person who walked out of the polling place, who'd you vote for? You can collect more data and get more um, participation, uh, more cooperation if people don't think they have to sit there with a clipboard or iPad and fill out, you know, 15 pages of things. Right. And is there a bias in wanting to participate in the survey based on how your party's doing? I mean, sometimes, you know, what we like to do, and we've talked about this in 16 and other places, is analyze terminates. People who terminate in the survey, are they more likely or even don't want to be in a survey? Are they more likely to be Republican because they're like, oh, my team is you know, on the back foot. I don't want to be in this survey, you know. Yep. And so. if you're calling off the voter file, you can know. Right. Okay. It's, it is overwhelmingly yes. l- likely Trump voters who are the ones terminating or right. not taking, not complying. And so I need to make sure I'm weighting my data properly right. or I'm really focusing on Or does that mean now. they're not going to vote because taking a survey is an action that is, you know, yeah, predictive too. of being a voter too. So, you know, anyway, these are all sort of sausage making kinds of things. But um, but the, that same concept may have a role in the exit polls too. Well, I will report back, but I am I'm always down for a good inside the polling world beef. <laughs> we our trolling of the APA versus the APA produced zilch, by the way. Oh. <laughs> nobody got mad about that. No, no beef. Nothing started. whatsoever. No, but I mean, these the, the, if if there's a if there's a bare knuckle brawl uh, <laughs> over the exit polls at APOR. Yes. Well, once this all starts to like unfold, we should have somebody on to come. We should have a guest to come and talk about that. We've had Jolinsky on, and he's lovely. Oh yeah, somebody on from this too. So, anyway, I don't actually hope that there's like physical violence up. I'm joking. I should. I shouldn't joke. It would make news. It would make news. That's true. Are you good with people? Maybe you're organized or have a knack for numbers. Well, then chances are you've got skills that could lead to a new career. A Google Career Certificate can help you get a foot in the door with top employers in fast-growing fields like IT support, project management, data analytics, and user experience design. It's professional-level training developed and taught by Google employees. And it's all online, so you can learn around your schedule. Put your skills to work. Go to grow.google slash certificates. Uh, So let's talk a little bit about um, some of the issues that are out there. So last week, I wrote a piece for the Weekly Standard um, about- Was that on the cover? That was great. Yeah. So I was, uh, I didn't know that it was going to be the cover story. I knew that I was writing a piece that was supposed to be about young voters and politics. I knew that Ben Shapiro was going to be writing a piece for the same issue about young voters and culture. So Shapiro's piece went up online the day before mine did, and I read it, and his was like 2,000 words longer than mine and also talked about politics. And I was like, oh, great. Like, they're not even going to run my piece. My piece is going to be like buried in the back, like in a, uh, oh, no, I'm so sad. And then Friday rolled around and my piece came out and the cover 
That's great. Had the world's saddest elephant on it. Like it's this <laughs> elephant running like the grand funny. old cafe, and he wants pe- he wants the kids to come to his restaurant, and they look so sad. <laughs> I want to hang this in my office, but if I stare at this sad elephant all the time, it's going to be like emotional for me. So anyhow, the. Uh, Go right. Sh- does he need to change his menu or does he need to change his menu? Or does he need to stop sign, creepily standing? Sign not big enough, you know? <laughs> or is it just, you know, you just got a bad location, you just gotta wait until the construction is over on your side of town. <laughs> yeah. Um so anyhow, check it out. But so I've been hyper focused over the last few weeks on that favorite topic of mine, generation gaps in in issues. And we have two issues we'll talk about today. One is views of interpretation of the Constitution. And the second is global warming. So first, let's talk about this interpretation of the Constitution uh, question. So Pew has been asking for a while, do you believe that the Supreme Court should base its rulings on its understanding of what the Constitution either A, means in current times, or B, meant as originally written? The sort of Scalia originalism doesn't matter what you think in 2018. It matters what they thought when they wrote the document. That's that's how we should decide things. And for a while, that had been pretty evenly matched going back to 2005. That it had, you know, been it, at last check, it was 46 46. Uh, until now, 2018, you now have 55% of people saying they think the Supreme Court should base its decisions on what the Constitution means in current times. Only 41% say meant as originally written. And this is not just being driven by a shift in Democratic views. You've had Democrats an uptick of nine points in them saying what it means in current times is their answer. But you've had an uptick of 11 points. The same. The on the same, Republican side. The same yeah. increase. I mean, that goes to show like why it's good to look at these things from a couple different sides. If you just looked at the party breakout, you'd say, oh, well, look, Democrats feel you know overwhelmingly differently than Republicans. And that's true. But the I think the story that there's been an uptick of the same size, which you've not really seen particularly, not that big of a jump from any of these other askings, right? And both parties equally is qu- is actually quite interesting. I don't know if that continues, but it's also very interesting that these numbers were basically exactly even you for know, so long. For so long, and now they've moved. And I I wonder what's driving that. And if you take a look at the uh, breakouts by age and by party, it is a, still the case that for young Republicans, by a sixty-one to thirty-six margin, they believe in originalism versus what it means in current times. But there's still about, you know, 36 percent of young Republicans who think, well, it should be interpreted as what it means in in current times. So it's things like that that I think are really going to give like my right of center columnist wonk buddies like a heartburn. Yeah. I mean, it looks like there is an age gap for both parties that is a similar size. So sometimes mm-hmm. we see these things and it's like the age gap is on the Republican side more than on the Democratic side because Democrats are like really unified on a variety of things. And, you know, I think you see overall, at least from what they've broken out here, there is a little bit less, you know, variation on the Democratic side than on the Republican side. But the age gap is not really that. Um, it's the same. It's the same for both parties. Mm-hmm. So that's interesting. The other issue that uh, where you see an interesting age gap is on global warming, uh, which I'm fascinated by the way that Pew still uses the phrase global warming since you know the terminology in 
that sector has become climate change instead right. of global warming. Right. But, so Gallup- it's an anachronism because people have, you know, tracking that goes back, you know, thousands of years, like gun control and, you know. So you keep asking the question the same way. So Euthanasia is another one I've complained about. You know, it's just like these things that are not really the right, they're not quite the right term anymore. And on these questions, though, they ask uh, things like, do you believe that global warming will pose a serious threat in your lifetime? Do you think global warming is underestimated in the news that uh, most scientists believe global warming is occurring? Do you worry a great deal or a fair amount about global warming? On all of these questions, it is people 18 to 34 who are much more likely than those 55 and older, and, and typically more so than even those 35 to 54 to say that, yes, they think uh, they they worry about this issue. Um, they think most scientists believe it's occurring. Uh, they feel like they understand the issue pretty well. And that uh, the biggest age gap is around it's global warming is caused by human activities and it will pose a serious threat in your lifetimes. Yeah. So when there is polling on climate change, which is what we now call it, they usually separate out into a couple different metrics like this, like is it serious and is it man-made? You know, are you feeling it now, right? Would they have something like that? Those are slightly different takes. They are slightly different. I mean, they're different takes at the same concept. You get sli- you get somewhat different results. I mean, there are people who say, well, it's not man-made, but it's happening now. Or it's, you know, it's man-made, but it's not serious. I mean, there are people who are, you know, inconsistent on some of those. Um, what's interesting here is that there's no item on which younger people don't feel more strongly about it than older people. But the smallest gap is on understanding it very well on on that one. You know, folks who are seniors or 55 and older, I should say, they don't, you know, they don't feel as strongly about as strongly about any of these except on, I, you know, I understand it pretty well. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> which is funny. So that brings us to our last poll, the always high quality, extremely methodologically rigorous polls that we tack onto the end of our show. I was so relieved that there was no, like, it was obvious where we were going to find our poll for the close this week. I'm like, where is the polling on the royal wedding? It has got to exist. And we found it. So there is a British anti-monarchist group called Republic. I'd have never heard of them. A very nice restaurant in Tacoma Park also, which is, you know, known as the People's Republic of Tacoma Park. So, like, our best restaurant's called Republic. Anyway, because uh, we love I it. We're like, joke. you know. I get it. That's fine. <laughs> we embrace it. <laughs> so this group has commissioned an online poll of about 1,600 people to gauge public sentiment about the upcoming royal wedding between American Meghan Markle and Prince Harry. And... I don't know who these 1,600 people are. I don't know how they were sampled. I assume they are British people. Yes, I'm assuming they are too. And they find that two-thirds of those in the UK are not interested in the royal wedding. Liars. <laughs> that's a lot. You think that's too many? It feels like a lot. I mean, I guess it's probably like you want to say, I'm not interested, right? That's like maybe the socially desirable thing. And they just kind of just had one. They may feel like we had a really, really big one It kind of took over the whole it was you know the wedding that ate everything and so we're well William and Kate too I mean that that they're going to be king and queen right whereas Harry and Meghan Markle are going to be humanitarians slash partying in Monaco right right. you know (laughs) right not exactly the same thing it's not exactly the same um they'll probably be fun to watch but it's it's not like it doesn't have the same national importance yes sorry second siblings 
uh, I say as the the, the <laughs> oldest of three. Like, sometimes, sometimes the firstborn, you know, it's just you get more attention. Yeah, it's just how it is. Um, so 57% of respondents say they think the royal family should pay the full cost of the wedding, including security costs. That actually seems reasonable to me. Yeah. I think what I read is that they are paying for the wedding, but some of the security costs are paid by the state. Okay. Okay. Which uh, is often how these things go. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, there's we have these debates in the U.S. about yeah. to what extent. The military parade, for example. Well, uh, and I mean, yesterday I was on CNN. People were asking about Scott Pruitt wanting a 24-7 security detail. And I I actually view that as like less offensive than some of the other Scott Pruitt things because we live in a world where less than a year ago a crazy guy shot up a baseball field full of Republican members of Congress. So I get not feeling super safe in this current moment. And I get that it is a government responsibility to protect. To in some way protect those who serve in it, but I feel like that one, that fifty-seven percent makes sense to me. Twenty-seven um, percent of Brits say they will watch some or all of the wedding online, in on TV, on the radio. Another three percent said they will watch it in person. That is a lot of people to fit into Windsor Castle. <laughs> Maybe they mean they're just gonna like, like they're stand gonna... outside and. Go hang out. Yeah, wait yeah. for something, somebody to come out and wave at them, I guess. And 76% of respondents said they would not want to contribute their own taxes to the wedding if given a choice, which is also a totally understandable yes. point of view. And did you see the thing about how her dad is not going to come? Isn't that just made you so sad? Well, it's it's a whole – we could it's made we could me, talk I mean, the whole it's thing a whole made mess. Me, the whole thing made me sad. Um it's she has siblings who make me so grateful for my two sisters because <laughs> these people are looty tunes. I know. I know. I mean that's I mean that's she, part the, of the, the British royal family is the normal family in this situation. I know. I mean I, you know I find her I mean it just makes her relatable and that's you yep. know that's all that's all good. Um yeah, they are they there's um you know my little neck of the of the shire as we call it Tacoma Park there's like a little they're having a little party for the kids when everyone's going to watch the royal wedding I'm going I'm going to be out of town but um I think I'm, I'm flying also back enjoy. from Apor late 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 Friday night um and my best friend Mary is going to come over and watch it at my house and she's like I'm coming over before 6 a.m. Like, that's when people are going to start arriving. And I'm like, oh, I'm going to be so jealous. <laughs> so I was like, you have the spare key to my house. Like, you can just let yourself in. <laughs> and I'll just roll downstairs at some point. That's good. That's good. Like Christmas morning. Yep. Right? <laughs> no, I mean, you know, it's good. I mean, I get I, – I totally get, like, my mother-in-law during the last royal wedding. I mean, there was this kind of – undercurrent of like, why do we, why does, you know, we lose productivity as a nation when everybody's got to take off from work and I don't get what all the hubbub is about. Like there was definitely, like I definitely heard that vibe and, you know, it's easy for us to watch like, hey, this looks fun and glamorous and we can just watch it for a couple hours and then like go on with our lives. Doesn't, you know, if we don't want to be part of it anyway, we can, it's completely easy to do that. But if you feel like kind of surrounded by all of it, I could see how you just be like, yeah. It's not. It's not for me. I remember very distinctly watching William and Kate's wedding because I was engaged at the time. So I was my wedding was like a year out, but right. it was very. And I had remembered I wanted a wedding dress with sleeves, and I went out shopping for wedding dresses, and there were like no dresses with sleeves anywhere. They right. didn't exist. 
And she gets out of that carriage and she's got big long sleeves on. And I was like, girl, there's going to be so many dresses with sleeves now. And I already bought my dress. I love my dress. I have no regrets. But I remember like that was my first thought was like, yes, she's got an Alexander McQueen dress with sleeves. Well, oh, I'm so you jealous of going to dress with sleeves if you, you know. <laughs> Really, really worked very hard. <laughs> I know, I know. It's fine. <laughs> um, okay, so key findings. Are we grading Trump on a curve if we think 43% approval, not even halfway through his first term, is good news? Pulling out of the Iran deal, voters may be divided, but they're less divided on the impact. And once Kristen's done sorting through all these age differences, she's going to APOR. Go find her. She is the pollster's host you most want to have a beer with because I don't really drink beer. Um, and, then, <laughs> and then with the news so bad, it's going to actually drive me to watch wedding television. That's what it's come to. You can find us on Twitter at, at the pollsters, individually at, at Margie O'Meara and at Casel DeSanderson. Find us at www.thepolsters.com. Dot com, or you can find us on Facebook where we post links throughout the week to the stories we think you'll want to talk about. You can write us a review. Let us know yeah. what you think. We love reviews. We read them. We need to start reading good reviews on air. All right. We don't get bad reviews. I mean – if they're always about sound quality or they're like, you know. Well, we have moved no, out thanks, of that. Thanks, Richard. You know, you can write Richard a review. <laughs> of our podcasting life. Yeah. So now we've, we've gone legit. Three plus years in. Yes. We've gone legit. That's right. <laughs> Finally figured it out. We cracked it. Okay. Bye.